what does it mean to be an exile? Who are exiles, and how do you live as an exile? So when I first started, uh, you know, studying the Bible a little bit more deeply, I had heard, like growing up in church, I had heard about exile, like Babylonian exile. And I knew that there was a, there was a time period when Israel was, was in exile. I didn't have a lot of clear thoughts about that. I just knew that was something that happened in the Bible. And, and sometimes when people were talking about the Old Testament, the word exile popped up. Um, as I uh, remember going to Bear Valley and sitting in like an Old Testament history class, I was fascinated by how much of the history and the identity of Israel is defined by that exile experience. From, I mean, the, the dates on it kind of vary depending on when you want to say uh, it first started and when it officially ended, but from something like uh, 606 BC to, or to, uh, to 536 BC, that's a 70-year period from when maybe the very first people were taken until the Edict of Cyrus. Uh, you have uh, uh, the major event of 586 BC, which is when Babylon comes in and destroys the temple and destroys the whole city of Jerusalem and takes everyone else captive. So what ends up happening is like there's this time in Israel's history where just horrible, horrible things happen. Their entire homeland, their entire worship experience, all of that is completely and utterly destroyed by a foreign enemy. A foreign enemy who is ruthless and powerful. Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of the ancient world during the Babylonian uh, period, he, I mean, he gets what he wants, and he wanted Jerusalem's wealth. He wanted the wealth of all these nations, so he expanded his empire. He caught with through conquest, violence, and bloodshed. He, he conquered the world. He took over, and Israel found themselves victims in that scenario. Many of the prophets, they knew that was coming. They predicted that was coming. Jeremiah specifically talks about a 70-year period where that's going to happen. They also interpreted those events not just to be about the power of an ancient Babylonian king, but even more than that, about the power of God. The exile was interpreted as punishment for Israel because of sins that Israel has been involved in. Now, if you know of a person, or if you yourself have experienced something very traumatic, gone through something that was uh, intense and difficult or something that was defining, that changes you. Like from that point forward, when you look back on your past and when you look towards your future, it's hard to view it without that in mind or without in some way it being colored or tinted by that traumatic experience. Israel's history is colored by exile all the way through. And, and so what I want to do is I want to begin this lesson by uh, reading a passage from the book of Jeremiah. Uh, it's written about this exile experience, and there's actually a letter written uh, about how you are supposed to live in exile. If you're going to live in exile, this is some, I think, very important advice on how to do it. Then we'll look at this idea and see how it kind of fits into the Bible, and we'll see how perhaps it even fits into our lives as well. Uh, perhaps there are ways in which we should view ourselves as exiles in the world around us. So, uh, Jeremiah chapter 29 is where we're going to be. In uh, verse 1, it says, Now these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priests and the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So, the context of this letter is imagine your home in, 
has been uh, destroyed. You and your family have been picked up and taken off to some uh, foreign country that maybe we're at war with. And you're now living there in a foreign land. And you think about home and you long for home and you miss the people back home and you miss the worship back home and you miss this church and you miss all of those things and you are in a foreign land. How are you supposed to live there? What are you supposed to do there? These are your enemies, and they're all around you, and they've ruined your life, and they've taken everything from you, and they've destroyed your hope of a future. What are you going to do while you're in exile in this foreign land? This letter is supposed to help them understand what do we do now. Uh, So verse 4, it says, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Notice that's interesting. Um, In verse 1, it talks about Nebuchadnezzar has taken them. But in verse 4, God actually says, no, I sent them there. Remember, this is interpreted as a punishment. Uh, uh, it's, It's God's doing. God's the one who sends them into exile, and God's the one who will ultimately bring them out of it. But then verse 5, this is what you do. You build houses, and you live in them. You plant gardens, and you eat their produce. You take wives, and you become fathers of sons and daughters, and you take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to husbands, and that they may bear sons and daughters, and multiply there, and do not decrease. You know what that's a way of saying? It's a way of saying, you live your life. You live as well as you can in exile, and you don't forget what matters. You be a good husband. You be a good wife. You have children. You be good parents. You raise your children. You try to make sure your children are as successful as they can be in the land of exile. You try to get husbands and wives for your sons and daughters. Make sure that you have a house to live in. Plant gardens. Make it beautiful. Enjoy the produce. When you go there, don't spend your entire time in bitterness and in misery looking back in, in, in your tears being your food night and day. That's, that's the way some of the psalmists describe their, their pain in exile. Go there and try to make a life of it. Because several things. One, you're going to be there a while. Um, There seem to be some prophets who are saying, ah, this won't take long at all. We'll be back home in no time. And Jeremiah is saying, no, you you might as well try to make the best of it because you're going to have time for your house to to be built. There's going to be enough time for your crops to grow. There's going to be enough time to have children. There's going to be enough time for them to grow and get married. You're going to be in Babylon a while. It's a 70-year captivity, so live your life. So on the one hand, it's not all good news. Uh, If you're being told this, it means you're going to be there a while. But on the other hand, what it means is that you can try to make the best of it. You can try to live in such a way where you still find peace and happiness, where your life isn't wasted because of this this, uh, trauma that you're experiencing. But then you get to verse 7. He tells him something else, and this is fascinating. Before we read it, just think for a moment. The lesson this morning, we talked about Jonah. What was Jonah's problem with Nineveh? He hated Nineveh, and he hated the Assyrians. They were his enemies. He had to go there against his will, and he didn't have to stay there for a long time. He could just go there and deliver this message, right? Imagine he was taken as a captive to go live the rest of his life in Nineveh. What do you think his attitude would be like while in Nineveh? What do you think he would think when he saw those people around him? What would go through his mind day after day as he saw the marketplace, as he saw their idols, as he saw their armies, as he saw their their city that was built on bloodshed, when he saw all of that around them? What would his attitude be as he saw that? I have a feeling it would be one of intense hatred. 
I have a feeling it would be one where it caused bitterness and malice every time he looked around and opened his eyes. His spirit would be stirred up within him with, with anger and rage. You know what this says to do to people in that situation? Your enemies have come. They have destroyed your home. They've taken you captive. You now live among them in a foreign land. Do you know what you should do? Verse 7. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, welfare, you will have welfare. In its peace, you will have peace. Uh, The idea is you're going to live here, so you might as well try to do well there. Hope for the best there. Pray for the people who are there. Seek peace and welfare in this city. You want the city to do well. You could be tempted out of hatred for your city to want the city to fall and for other people to come and destroy this city. But he says, no. You should seek the welfare of the city where where you are. This idea of praying for your enemies, even while they're holding you captive, it kind of reminds me of some of the things that, that Jesus says about loving your enemies, about praying for those who persecute you, doing good to those who do harm to you. That's an idea that you could find seeds of planted many years earlier in passages like this. How is it that you live in an exile in a foreign land? You make the best of it and you seek peace in the city that you are, and you hope for a better future. As this uh, letter continues, verse 8 says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name, and I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Those are probably those who were saying, Ah, don't worry about it. We'll be back home in no time. Uh, What he's saying is there are people who are out there prophesying falsely in my name. Verse 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good work to you and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and hope. And then when you call upon me and come and pray to me, I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. What God is saying is things are going to be rough, but you can make the best of it. You can pray for those around you while you're in exile, and you can hope for a better future because your God hasn't forgotten you. Your God sees you even when you're in exile. Your God is aware of you even when you feel distant and in a foreign land. All right, so that's a one letter, and there's more to this letter, and it's an interesting one to keep reading. But there's a lot in that right there to chew on for how do you live as an exile. So one thing that I think is helpful to, um, to remember is as we read about this exile experience, yes, this is a 70-year period in the life of Israel. It's unique in that way. However, exile is not unique to this one time period, and it's not unique to this one period. As a matter of fact, uh, or to this one people, as a matter of fact, exile is one of the major themes that begins uh, in the early parts of the Bible and goes all the way to the end. Um, Adam and Eve were placed in a beautiful garden of Eden. This garden, they were placed in there. They were to protect and to serve this garden. They were to uh, be fruitful and multiply. They were to to expand the garden and fill the whole earth. Like They had a, a vocation and a commission while they were there. And yet, something got in the way. Uh, There was sin, there was a fall, and they were banished from that garden to where now they would live away from it in a land that was hostile to them, where thorns and thistles would grow and where man would only be able to uh, survive by the sweat of his brow. 
what you have in the very early pages, the first punishment, really, that you see in the Bible is that of exile. It's banishment from the promised land, from the land that is, you know, filled with the very presence of God. There is no doubt that Israel, and we know there's no doubt because they actually make this connection, when they were in Babylon looking back to Jerusalem, the promised land, they made that connection. They had been banished, in essence, from Eden. They had been in the place where they were in the presence of God with the temple, and now that has been destroyed, and because of sin, they've been sent to a foreign land. That's exile. So that's not only the story of Israel for this 170-year period, that's the story of all humanity from the beginning of time. We are exiles here longing for what God intended this whole creation to be. In exile, the story of it continues. You read about Cain not too much after that. And you remember what his punishment was after killing Abel? Um, he was, it was exile. He was banished. Uh, he had to go live as a vagabond. He had to go live in a, in a, in a dis distant place. Um, he was kept safe there, though. Remember, he was given that mark. Uh, that mark's not a punishment. That mark was a gift. That mark was a salvation that warned everybody, hey, this person, he's a foreigner, he's an exile, uh, he has a past, and a lot of times people immediately view foreigners and exiles with extreme suspicion. Don't do that with Cain. Don't, uh, don't attack him. Don't kill him. God will avenge him. He is to be kept safe, but Cain was banished and exiled. One thing that's fascinating as you keep reading the story of the Bible is there is a, an irony that comes with Babylonian captivity. Because one of the first major worldwide exiles that you see uh, after the Garden of Eden, and then you do see Cain, is at the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel, all humanity comes together. And you know what the Tower of Babel is? Very literally in Hebrew, it's the Tower of Babylon. It's the exact same word as Babylon. It's just kind of out of tradition. We call it Babel instead of Babylon. Uh, but it is the Tower of Babylon. That is the word that's used there in Hebrew. And that is where it is. It's in Babylon. So like the world's first major ancient wicked city in the story of Genesis is Babylon. And it's a city built out of pride, built with these huge structures. You can actually see some of these structures um, through archaeology we've discovered. They're called the ziggurat, where basically it looks kind of like a mountain. And it's huge and it's flat on top. And that's where the gods are supposed to abide. And there's a, there's a huge staircase that leads up to it. Most of like the artwork you've seen depicting the, depicting the Tower of Babel is like a spiral thing going down like that. Uh, a tower, it probably would have historically been more like a, a ziggurat, a huge structure with a staircase leading up where the gods are supposed to be on top of it. It's like a temple type of structure. And, and that's what they're building, and they are doing so out of pride and, and arrogance. They are using their unity to, uh, which by the way, one thing that's fascinating about that story is how much credit God gives to humans. He says, with them all working together and speaking the same language, there's nothing they can't do. God seems to believe that there is a lot of power in human unity. Um, one of our missions as the church is to unify the world, not out of pride and arrogance to make a name for ourselves like the Tower of Babel, but in order to glorify God. And when that happens, there's a whole lot that could be accomplished. But there in that story, what ends up happening is exile. People are banished from Babylon. So when Israel finds themselves in Babylonian captivity, they have returned to the wicked city from which they were originally banished. Uh, they are, were exiled to the city where the original exile happened from. Uh, and so Babylon 
is from the earliest pages associated with exile. The people were exiled from Babylon, and this wicked city continued to grow and to become more and more violent and opposed to God's ways, and they eventually got exiled back to Babylon after God gave them the promised land. They went back to Babel. Uh, But in that, you see this period of 70 years. Then from their story, that point forward, they were allowed to return home. That 70 years ended, they were allowed to return home. But what was different is prior to that 70 years, they had like a king, like David, or King Solomon. Or then there was a split in the kingdom, and you had Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and they each had their own lines of kings. And then in the north, you had, you know, just anarchy, and what this king would be assassinated, and this person would become king. And, and you had all of that, but they had at least their own kingdom. There wasn't always a lot of peace, but they did have their own kings and kingdoms. Then the, northern, the north uh, fell to Assyria, Nineveh, uh, had a lot to do with that. And the south, the south remained on until the 70-year captivity. They go to Babylon, they return home, they start rebuilding their city, they start rebuilding the temple. But do you know what they do not get? Their own king again. They're ruled and dominated by foreign kings, whether it's the Babylonians or then the Persians or then the Greeks or then uh, the, the Romans eventually. And even though they were home, their culture and their language and their laws and their power was all dominated by a foreign land. It was like, yeah, I guess exile ended, but not completely. They were still living in exile at home. And that becomes a really, really important idea. Living in exile while you're still at home. It's like, yeah, we're back home. But we're not what the kingdom that God promised we would be. We don't have a son of David sitting on the throne. And they're longing for exile to fully and completely end. It's like, it's like exile kept its grips on them even when they went back home. And it held them down and held them captive year after year after year. So when they are longing for a Messiah, you know, there were, there were promises that there would always be a son of David seated on the throne. And they look around them, and they knew exile happened. But since that time, they don't have a son of David seated on the throne. When are we going to be our own people again? When will this exile experience finally be gone? When will we be able to rid ourselves of it? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 begins with a genealogy of Jesus. Um, genealogies are the types of things that, in Matthew 1's not bad because it's kind of short, but some of them, if you like, start reading First Chronicles, your eyes gloss over. You begin to realize that I haven't paid attention to one of these weird names in the last five minutes, and it's just like long list after list after list. And sometimes it can, it can, that's where people stop their daily Bible reading. You know, it's, genealogies can be tough. Um, but one thing that's fascinating about them is that there are many ways you could write a genealogy. Jesus has two in the Bible, uh, one in Matthew and one in Luke, and compare them. They're written completely differently. Um, they, they follow a couple of different lines. Uh, they seem to follow a different, uh, they certainly go in a different order. They have a different starting place. Uh, they have a different ending place. Like, like the genealogies in Matthew and Luke are quite different. And those are just two options. You have many ways you could potentially write genealogies. Uh, you don't have to, in, in fact, Israel, they didn't always include every generation. Sometimes they would skip generations to highlight particularly important generations. And, and sometimes they would add people who you wouldn't order add. For example, as you read this genealogy in Matthew, there are women mentioned, 
which doesn't happen very often in most genealogies. And these women all have something in common. Uh, most of them are foreign women. Uh, they are like, like uh, Ruth was from Moab. Or, or you have a woman who, uh, you have Tamar, you have Ruth, and you have uh, these others who were like, came into Israel, but were not originally a part of Israel. Um, but then also they tend to have some sort of sordid uh, question in their past. Uh, maybe it's their fault, maybe it's not their fault, but, but you have a questionable history in, in a foreign a person and a, a woman. And so when you see those types of things, you think, okay, well maybe there's something there that is, uh, I'm supposed to notice as I continue to read through this. Uh, maybe this is setting the stage for me understanding Jesus a little bit better. Maybe Jesus is going to be someone who reaches out to even women who uh, would ordinarily be neglected. You're actually going to see that in the gospel. Maybe he reaches out to foreigners in ways that you wouldn't ordinarily expect the Messiah to do. And, and they kind of plant seeds that can help you read the rest of the story. All of that is to say Matthew has a very intentional structure in the way he does his genealogy. In fact, it's so intentional that after he finishes the genealogy, he goes and recaps it for you so that you don't miss it. There is a certain number of generations. There's 14, 14, 14. Uh, he wants you to see three sets of 14. And he also includes a major event at each of these 14, um, or, or a major name. So you have uh, Abraham is at the beginning. And Abraham is going to go to David. All right, so you're going to have basically the call of Israel to the, the, the king of the United Kingdom of Israel, the, the first king in the line of David. Uh, and so you get from the call to the monarchy. In between there, you're going to have like Egyptian slavery, the judges, the, all of that stuff. But you're going to get that time period right there. Call, the beginning, the founding of Israel to the monarchy. And then the monarchy, David, is going to take you 14 generations until exile until the Babylonian uh, deportation. It, when you look at uh, verse 12, uh, verse 11 of chapter 1, it says, Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Now, you don't usually include events in a genealogy. Like, if you're doing a genealogy and you're just recording people's names, you don't usually stop and say, okay, and then this happened, and you, like, name some big event that happens. Genealogies are names of people, not events. Uh, so right in this genealogy, you get at least one major event that takes place, which is deportation to Babylon. Then you get to verse 12, and it's after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father, and he, he goes back to the genealogy. But he wants you to note that Babylonian exile, that 70-year period, what we just read about in Jeremiah 29, that's right here intentionally listed in Matthew's genealogy because going from David to Babylonian exile is the entire time period of the kings, of the monarchy. When you get to exile, you don't get these kings anymore after that. So you get from like Abraham to the kings, from the kings to the fall of the kings, and then from the fall of the kings to Jesus. Exile leads to Jesus. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the one who's going to become king and put the ultimate end to exile. So when you get to verse 17... This is where he recaps it, so you didn't miss that. He says, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, to exile, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. If you want to 
break down the story of Israel into four parts. Abraham, David, exile, Jesus. Those are going to be the major four parts he wants you to get from this genealogy. He thinks that's a good way to summarize the whole story of Israel, to condense it down into like 17 verses. These are all the names. They all have stories. They are, they're all people. They matter. But these are the four events that tell the story. Abraham, David, exiled Jesus. Why is that important? Because Jesus is the one who will officially, finally put an end to that exile by starting the kingdom again. He will start a kingdom, but it will not be quite like the kingdom that you've come to expect. And so the story of Matthew is how Jesus puts an end to exile by becoming the king again, by having the kingdom of God return to Israel, to where they are their own people again. And so Jesus, kind of like the story of Exodus, Exodus is an exile story. They're slaves in, in Egypt, but they're able to get out of Egypt to travel through and, and, and to return home. It's a story of leaving exile and going to the promised land. Exile is all the way through uh, the story of the Bible. Even when they're at home, there's still the story of exile continuing. Now, having said all of that, Jesus does put an end to exile, but there's also a sense in which we find ourselves in a new type of exile as followers of Jesus. Look with me at the book of 1 Peter. In 1 Peter, exile is going to be one of the uh, most helpful categories for us to keep in our mind as we read through it. Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as exiles, scattered among Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. But he mentions uh, these places in Asia Minor saying that to the exiles who are there. And I think exile is intentional uh, I do think this is to all of the Christians there. I think this is to Christians there who will learn and read this. It's an intentional way of talking about people who have their citizenship elsewhere, but find themselves living in this province. Um, Paul describes himself that way. Uh, Paul describes all of us that way. Paul's someone who, you know, his citizenship was in Rome. He was a Roman citizen, but he lived in Tarsus. Uh, he grew up in Jerusalem. Um, there's an idea of sometimes you can have your citizenship somewhere and live elsewhere. Paul uses that when he talks about us. Living here, we are citizens of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait uh, the coming of our Savior. Like, our citizenship is elsewhere, but we find ourselves here. And so how do, what, what is it like to live here when we are actual citizens elsewhere and our king lives elsewhere? We're exiles here. That's how we find ourselves. As Christians, we find ourselves as exiles. Even in our homeland, we're exiles. Even in the place you grew up, you're in exile. Uh, later on in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 11, he tells us, Beloved, I urge you, as exiles and strangers, to abstain from fleshly lust, to wage war against your soul, and keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Here's what he's saying, kind of like what Jeremiah said. Remember Jeremiah's message, seek the welfare of the city where you are, pray for them, pray that things go well for them. Here he's saying, if you're going to find yourself living in a culture that views you with suspicion because of your allegiance to a different king, because of your citizenship in a different area, 
Live in such a way that they find nothing wrong with what you're doing. In such a way that they can see the goodness of God through you. Make your home country look good by being a well-behaved exile. So if you're going to be an exile here on this earth because you're a citizen of heaven, live in such a way that heaven looks good. Live in such a way that your king is well represented in the way that you, in the way that you act. That's going to look like, you know, verse 12 says, keeping your behavior excellent. When it comes to your responsibility to the government, verse 13, you be submissive and you keep your behavior excellent. He says in verse 15 of chapter 2, For this is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the foolishness of ignorant men. Uh, People who would want to condemn you, when they look at you and see you doing what is right, having good behavior, they're silenced. They can't find anything to critique or condemn. Um, You be submissive to those who have authority over you. In chapter 3, you be submissive to unbelievers, even an unbelieving husband. A wife is to be submissive. That way, he can be won by her behavior. In the same way, husbands, in verse 7, are supposed to live with their wives in an understanding way. Everyone, in verse 8 of chapter 3, is to be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose, that you might inherit a blessing. That's how you live as an exile. And so when we, when we think about uh, the story of the Bible, we think about exile for all humanity happening in Eden. We think about exile happening here and there at specific occasions. You think about the 70-year exile, but then there's also the sense that even if that 70-year exile, it continued on in some ways, even after Israel returned home until Jesus came to bring about the kingdom of God. But once you become a part of the kingdom of God, you enter into exile in a new way. And we're longing towards the ultimate end of exile, which is Eden restored, eternal life uh, given again, the very presence of God back with us again. That's the picture that the book of Revelation ends with. The trees of life are there for the healing of the nations, and the water of life is there, the river of life. And, And you see, the curse is no longer there. Exile has fully and completely ended. So from beginning to end, exile is a major theme, but throughout it, you have these calls for how you live when you find yourself in exile. You care even about your enemies. You pray for those who have put you in exile. You seek the welfare of the city where you are. You keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. You be a submissive person. You be an obedient person. You be a kind, caring person. You don't return evil for evil or insult for insult. You keep your ultimate whole allegiance to your one true king above any other allegiance that this world tries to get from you. No matter what country you live in, no matter who is ruling, no matter whether you like the president or the king or whoever it may be, your sole allegiance above anything and everything else is to your ultimate King Jesus, and you find yourself as an exile in this land. Live as a good exile. Um, Those are some of the ideas throughout the Bible, and there's a lot more that you could dig into associated with the idea of being an exile. David, or sorry, Daniel was an exile. That that book is about how to live as an exile. He's someone who, in some ways, 
brought up the culture of the king around him. In some ways, he followed the culture where he could, but he also drew lines when he needed to draw lines. He wouldn't worship the false gods of the culture, even though he was certainly a benefit to the king in that culture. He found ways of living faithfully as an exile. There's many passages you can go to that present these types of ideas. But ultimately, as we bring the lesson to a close, live in such a way where those who are not citizens of heaven can see the goodness of heaven in you. Pray for the welfare of the city where you are. Uh, Show the goodness of God in the community and in the world around you. Be a faithful exile. If there's anyone here tonight who uh, you have sins you would like to repent of or you would like the prayers of the church or if anyone would like to become a Christian and be baptized here tonight, we would love to help you in that in any way that we can. If you have a need, come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.